Welcome to the Insightful Investor Podcast, a weekly series that seeks to share industry, investment, and market insights. We define insights as concepts that are counterintuitive, widely misunderstood, or underappreciated. In other words, unique ideas that you probably won't hear elsewhere. I'm Alex Shahidi, the host of the podcast and co-CIO of Evoke Advisors, one of the nation's leading investment advisory firms. Learn more about our show at insightfulinvestor.org. I'm pleased to have Tony Cassano joining me today. Uh, Tony is the co-founder and managing partner of Banner Ridge, a $7 billion alternative asset manager. Uh, we focus on uh, providing uh, liquidity solutions to limited partners of uh, pri- private equity firms. Uh, Tony, I appreciate you uh, joining me today. Absolutely. My pleasure to be here. I recall we uh, had a meeting uh, several months ago. This was before the podcast launch, and I told you that I was planning on launching a podcast, and I was uh, very pleased about your enthusiasm for uh, being a listener, and uh, and I'm also very uh, you know fortunate to have you as a guest. Uh, have you been listening to the podcast, and, and what do you think so far? I have. I've actually listened to all of them, uh, partially in prep, but partially because they were all very interesting. The people you had on so far... Um, their backgrounds are very different than mine. Uh, most of them were in the, in the public markets to some degree. And so kind of listening to their views on risk management and just overall their, their experience. Um, I think several of them were at Bridgewater was uh, what was kind of fascinating. So um, I feel like the podcast is off to a great start. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And, and obviously there's so many different ways to make money. And, and I like hearing different perspectives, you know, public markets, private markets, different orientations for investing. Uh, different areas of focus that uh, managers have. Um, so I'm really excited to jump into your perspectives. Great. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, so, so Tony, why don't we start with uh, your background and uh, maybe talk about your, your evolution uh, from school uh, up until today and what led you to this industry? Um, and if you could highlight any unique or interesting uh, parts of the path that you traveled to get here. So I was very entrepreneurial from a, from a, a young age. I started a number of small businesses um, in my teen years. I, I started a surfboard business where I was shaping glass and boards. I then moved on to a business where I was actually going around bars in, in San Diego, California, buying neon lights, like neon bar lights, because these bars would, would get these lights as promotional items for free. And, and back then, you could sell them to fraternities and people who had pool rooms on eBay for for $500 to $1,000, depending on the lights. I started doing that. I was going around to colleges, uh, collecting the, the textbooks to school, wouldn't buy back after the semester was over. And I realized that there were, there were colleges across the US that were still using that book. So I could buy, you know, get them for free in San Diego and in, in LA at these colleges and sell them on what was an online bookstore at the time, which became everything, Amazon. And I was collapsing the market for all these college textbooks. I started a property management business, which I which I later moved on from, but made money at. And I kind of got my big break when I started an IT consulting business when I was uh, just out of undergrad. And I took a lot of the experience I had uh, in a class, an information technology class in undergrad, designing websites. Uh, and from a friend of mine in college who, who kind of gave me some, some of the early uh, skills on the IT side. And I started that business just after I graduated, I graduated with a finance degree in undergrad from, from Cal Poly, uh, Polytech in, in Central California, but then went on to do this IT thing next as I was going to graduate school. So I went straight into graduate school out of undergrad and, and ran this IT business for two years. Um, I ultimately uh, sold that business when I graduated from graduate school two years later. And in one month in June of 2007, which was a big month for me, I... Um, I bought a house with some of the proceeds. I sold my company and I got a job and, and I got a job in, in, in financial services business. And, and that was really always the plan for me. You know, I loved starting companies. I loved finding ways, non-traditional ways to make money. But um, really what drove me into finance was when I was younger, um, early teens, you know, my father... My grandfather, who are both engineers by training, um, were invested with a broker at one of the big wirehouses during the dot-com bubble. And, and back then, 
there was this concept of churning that was very real in both of their accounts. They, they both lost a pretty significant amount of money from this individual just trading their accounts. And I remember thinking when I was younger, I felt the instability from it, but I remember thinking, wow, these really smart people, uh, but they know nothing about managing money. And it was kind of my, you know, my first thought was I got to figure out how to do this so that this never happens to me uh, and I can help my family. And so when I got out of uh, graduate school, I took a job uh, at a, a consulting business in San Diego, California called Stepstone Group. And, uh, you know, Stepstone was doing private equity consulting, but they were a startup. You know, I was the seventh hire. You know, today, Stepstone is a $3 billion plus public company. You know, back then when I started, I sat you know, two feet away from a senior associate who had just left TPG, the big buyout shop in San Francisco, who later became a mentor and a close personal friend. Uh, you know, he's now the CEO and, uh, and that business has come a really long way. But the reason it was exciting for me was because my plan after selling the company was, okay, I want to get into finance, but ultimately I, I want to do something else entrepreneurial. And the best way to do that, at least as I thought is, as a 24-year-old, uh, was to go look at other really smart people operating businesses and decide, do, do I want to try to, is there a key insight I can get to, to get into another business on the operation side, you know, running something that actually creates a product? Or... Is there something, some key insight that I can glean from this role at Stepstone where I can go out and start something in finance on my own down the road? And so when I started at Stepstone, I was the most junior person on the team. So I originally was covering kind of the least sexy part of the market, which in 2007 was distressed special situations in credit. Uh, you know, buyout, venture, everything was on fire, just, just doing really well year over year. And it's just no one cared about credit. Uh, no one thought about downside. And so that's where I focused. Um, and that's what I covered for the first, for the early years. I was there through the global financial crisis, which gave me this really unique perspective, incredibly valuable. And it's something I think of a lot about today because I think, you know, if you're under 35 years old, you really haven't lived through a major recession. And therefore, your views on risk management, which some of your other guests on previous podcasts focus a lot on, I don't think would be as well developed uh, unless you can get that out of a book, but living it is just very different. So I was fortunate enough to be there in 2009 when Stepstone brought on an individual to help build out their secondaries business. Uh, this individual came in. And so by day, I was consulting on distress, special situations and credit. By night, I was working with him on transactions largely in buyout on the secondary side. And it was really the first time I'd heard of secondaries. Um, I, I kind of knew what it was uh, by name when I joined Stepstone, but really once this individual came on, uh, I got a kind of a firsthand uh, view and got to dive right into understanding what the transactions looked like, who the sellers were, you know, how liquid the market was, what, what were the average discounts, what sort of returns could you, could you get at least at that time? A lot of the big sellers then were, were these Ivy League schools. They were running this kind of endowment model, which Yale, Yale was famous for. And they were coming to market saying, uh, we overcommitted to private equity. We need, we need to sell stuff. Let, let us know what you're interested in. And, um, and that was really exciting. But the one key insight I gleaned that year, which ultimately led to where my career is today, was all the buyers in the market at the time were buying secondaries in funds where the strategy of the fund was buyout. And it made sense because that's what the majority of private equity was. But when there were funds being sold where the strategy was distressed special situations, opportunistic credit, venture, real estate, infrastructure, there weren't buyers. And at that time, it was fairly obvious to me that the best opportunity that I was seeing was... Uh, buying secondaries in funds where the underlying assets were credit. Remember, this is global financial crisis time. You, you didn't really want to be buying massively levered equity where the loans of these companies were trading at huge discounts. It just wasn't something that a risk that, that I think you'd want to take relative to the risk of buying credit at a big discount. So I started looking around for a seat that I could join uh, in a different firm where I could take advantage of this because Stepstone at the time was just a consulting firm. Later, they became an asset manager, but, but they weren't doing that then. 
And so I found a firm in New York City called Sigler Guff that I'd never heard of. I moved from San Diego to New York. I didn't know a single person who lived in New York City at the time. Um, and I took this role because Sigler Guff had just raised $2.4 billion in a fund that was discretionary to them to invest in distressed special situations and credit, which is what I covered where I thought the opportunity was. But they had never done a secondary. They had done direct deals. They had done co-investments and they had done primary deals, which we'll talk about later, but they, but they'd never done a secondary. So when I joined the co-founders of Sigler Guff, uh, George Sigler and Drew Guff were great guys and gave me this incredible opportunity to, to build this business over the next nine years. Um, you know, allowed me to deploy capital out of their, their flagship vehicle, this 2.4 billion vehicle. The opportunity at the time felt like it could be a trade versus a business. So I didn't, I didn't focus as much on institutionalizing what we were doing because I actually thought that the opportunity would go away at some point. Uh, three years in, in 2013, the opportunity still existed. I thought, wow, this is, this is maybe more than a trade. This maybe, maybe this is something that's more uh, you know, structural in nature that could last a lot longer. And you thought, it was, you thought it may be a trade because it was just time specific, meaning there was an environment and then the opportunity came up and then eventually that environment would pass and then the opportunity would go away. Is that, was yeah, that the exactly right? Yeah. Because it, coming out of the global financial crisis, there's so many dislocations that, that it wasn't a stretch to think that this could just be one of those. And that at some point it would just, the opportunity would just close um, and sellers would go away. And that was my bigger concern at the time was why are people selling at these prices? Why does this keep happening? But in 2000, you know, 13, 14, 15, the credit markets were trading at par and I was still doing these deals. So, so kind of rolling forward to today, um, you know, we invested a significant amount of money at Sigular Guff. My team and I, we, we raised our fund one and fund two dedicated vehicles there. We deployed those, we fully realized them. And in 2019, this opportunity still existed. In fact, we knew we were missing deals because we weren't scaled at the time. We were a small team with a small capital pool we spun out as a team and started Banner Ridge. Uh, my co-founder, uh, CJ Dreesen, worked with me since 2013 at, at Sigular Guff, and my other partner, Sky Halper, came in 2015. And, uh, and, we, and we came out to, to basically build the same business that we had at Sigular Guff, but with all the lessons learned and in a scaled way that was more institutional than what we had uh, there. And then that included software and other things. And then the, uh, the Banner Ridge story in a nutshell is we started in 2019 with zero assets. Today, we're at $7.2 billion. And our flagship secondary fund, we've raised three uh, incremental funds since uh, starting Banner Ridge. And, um, and so far, everything is, uh, is doing incredibly well. And then we continue to generate the same types of performance that we did for the previous nine years at Sigler Guff. Okay, so before we get into... Uh, secondaries and in the different markets and the opportunity. Uh, why don't we just start with, you know, kind of go back to the beginning. A lot of people who decide to move into the investment management world are looking at public markets, uh, but you immediately jumped into private markets. What was it about that space that attracted you? Yeah, I, I think it was the recognition pretty early on that you could generate a real edge in private markets uh, by having better information than the people you're competing against. You know, in public markets, it's very difficult because uh, for, for somewhat obvious reasons, everyone has very similar information. And even if you're dedicated to covering one stock, and that's just all you do, you'll know that stock better than a lot of people, but there are still other people that cover that stock for different hedge funds. It, it just, it's just hard to get an edge that's legal. And in private markets, relationships create opportunity for better information more work uh, with less competition overall uh, allows you to really get an edge that translates to out, outsized performance. And that became abundantly clear to me when I was at StepStone. Uh, I, I thought this could be the case uh, going into StepStone. I had this as a thesis, but after seeing the information that we had and, uh, and the edges that we could glean through the global financial crisis, I thought, wow, this is this is really exciting. And this is the path I'm going to, I'm going to forge my career. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and why do you think that that gap doesn't close? Because you have trillions of dollars looking for 
outsized returns relative to the risk that's taken. And you would think it would find itself, you know, in all corners of the market where that disproportional return to risk ratio exists. And so why do you think that private markets, that gap hasn't closed as quickly as you would expect, you know, obviously public markets to do? Yeah, I mean, I think there's probably a number of reasons. You know, one of the reasons that it, it, that I think it's it's still there in what we do, and, and we'll kind of get into these more specifics and like what our edge is, you know, in the later part of the discussion. But I think a big part of it is if you're a distressed special situations manager and there is someone buying and selling your LP interest, so they're an investor who wants to sell their LP interest to another investor, your heavily guarded on what information you want out in the market. You know, it's similar to, and, and Bridgewater might've had this aspect to it as well, but most hedge funds are very guarded about what they own. And so it takes having a personal relationship. It takes being a partner with them to actually get access to information. that will even allow you to underwrite what's in a fund that you're buying. And that's just not something that's ever going to be broadly disseminated because they view their edge is their positions. Their, their proprietary research went into putting those positions on and taking them off. And so that's just something that's heavily guarded across the board with, with general partners. And on private companies, you know, when you move away from the distress managers more to the buyout managers in the secondary market, you know, the only time that you can actually get information without having direct line to the manager is if they have public debt. And that information will be useful, but it won't tell you the whole story. So I think it's just because it's more of a relationship business and there's just a limit on the number of relationships that you can maintain as a general partner. Um, so the bar, the barrier is just, just significantly higher to get in and get the information. Yeah, and the markets are very fragmented. Uh, they're more complex and the information isn't publicly available that anybody can pull it up. So it takes a lot of work to get the information and that can keep that gap between private and public markets sustained for an extended period of time. Exactly. Yeah. So before we get into investing, uh, you know, you're, you're, you've been a business owner since you graduated from, from college. That was one of your first things that you did. Most people, by the way, they graduate, they get a job somewhere, they learn, and then they start their own business. Uh, <laughs> you, you took the fast track, started your own business, then you know, realized, okay, I need to learn from other people in this other space that you wanted to enter, and then got that experience and then launched your business. So it's, that part of it, I think, is really interesting. But, but why don't you just talk a little bit about, uh, you know, the challenges of building a firm, um, you know, building uh, a culture, uh, you know, continuing to operate at a high you know, level, uh, maintaining quality, uh, passing that on to people who work uh, for you and with you. Uh, talk about that, that side of uh, your experience. Yeah, sure. It's, um, you know, you're building, building an A-team and keeping your culture intact is incredibly difficult. Every hire matters. So, so making sure you, you don't let people uh, who don't fit stick around is essential, but, but hard to do because there's a human element to that decision. You also take some grief from investors when, when your turnover is, is too high, but, but turnover to some degree is good. Um, you know, no one picks right 100% of the time and, and pushing people out who don't fit. I think by doing that, you show the people who do fit that they're special and actively managing your team, it, while, while it's hard, I think it's a sign of strong leadership uh, and, and a firm that prioritizes culture and results. And so I think that's that's one thing. I, you know, on the investment side, I think to be your best, you clearly need the right team, but it's so much more than just having smart people. So many smart people on Wall Street. You need the right process, and, and part of that process involves access to the right information at the right time, which is... I think best accomplished with software. Uh, and in our business, there's just not great off-the-shelf solutions. Um, you know, in the public markets, there's tons of software solutions. Some some firms create their own still, but there's lots of different options for, for, for helping you organize, underwrite, filter. You know, that doesn't exist in our business. And, and part of it is because secondaries is kind of a cottage industry for, for a long time. So when we started Banner Ridge, you know, after having nine years of experience, uh, largely using Excel and a whiteboard uh, as our pipeline, you know, we we built software from scratch. You know, kind of used the IT background I had. One of my partners also has a bit of an IT background, and uh, we spent a lot of money and time. Um, you know, and the biggest cost is actually senior leadership time 
you know, but in the end, having the software has allowed us to make, I think, more informed decisions at a speed that, that others, I think, would have a hard time replicating. It takes tons of information, makes it easy to filter, and, and gives our analysts and team what they need at the right time to make, to make those decisions. Yeah, and obviously, being a good leader requires a, quite a different skill set than being a good investor. And in a sense, you, you're wearing two hats. Yeah. Right? You're kind of running the firm, but you also uh, focus on the investments. Uh, would you talk through uh, some of your learnings and uh, in terms of running the firm and being a good leader and how that's evolved since you started? Yeah, sure. Uh, and I think for everyone, this is like a constantly evolving thing as you, you grow in your career uh, and you manage more and more people. Uh, you know, managing a team of five is very different than managing a team of 25. And it's probably very different, which I haven't got to yet, managing a team of 100 plus. Um, but, but I talked a bit about the culture and finding the right people. But, but leadership really starts with, it really starts with the senior people and then proliferates from there. And you know, at Banner Ridge, all of our partners are in the office every day and we're accessible. And, and that's very real. So, you know, there's oftentimes I'll be sitting here uh, after you know, the regular workday is kind of over, say, 6 p.m., and I'll have an analyst or an associate stop by just to chat. That makes a difference in your culture. You know, we work similar hours, the partners here, to the rest of the team. And, and I think we take, you know, few, probably not enough liberties that come with the, 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 the position and the success we've had. But this sets the standard for everyone else. You know, when I was younger, I wanted to be part of everything. You know, underwriting, uh, you know, the execution side, the sourcing side. It was kind of all exciting to me. And uh, I wanted to do as much as I possibly could about myself. You know, you want something done right, you, you do it yourself. But what I realized is that the, the only way I could scale, uh, you know, a business was to find the right people and empower them to do their, do their jobs. And so CJ Dreesen, uh, he's a co-founder here, was my first real hire back in 2013. I ran the business for, for like three years by myself. I was just two and a half. And then found CJ, we, we worked closely for years before I trusted him to, to handle lots of the prior responsibilities, really with limited input from me even. And, and he's better than me at most of, the, of what he does at Banner Ridge today. And he's allowed me to focus my energy elsewhere. It's similar to the, our next partner, which is Scott Halper, same situation, he joined in 2015, became a partner in 2022, but he proved himself over a long period of time. And, uh, and certainly he's better at the majority of the, the, the tasks he's responsible for today. So I guess the gist for me is uh, you, know, you got to get the right people in the right seats on the bus and then be honest with yourself about what you're really good at and, and maybe what you're not. And, and that's been an evolution for me as I've kind of grown uh, from doing everything myself to, to now managing a $7 billion business. Yeah. And one thing that I've learned in, in managing uh, my own business is you have to be honest uh, it's kind of self-reflecting on your own weaknesses. And ideally, you want to be able to surround yourself with people who have those strengths that complement you. And in, in that case, one plus one can equal three. Yeah, there, there's, there's no question. Um, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so let's, let's transition into uh, investing. Uh, we kind of talked about building a firm and, uh, and being successful in that regard. But uh, before we... You know, get into the, the nuts and bolts, uh, maybe just the level set so everybody listening is, is on the same page. Would you just describe the private market landscape and, and talk about primary, secondary, co-invest and come into different pockets? Um, and then we'll get into where you're finding opportunities. Yeah. I mean, in, in the private markets, there, there's just different ways to get, to get access to, to assets. You know, primaries are, think about primaries as uh, a manager is raising uh, capital for a specific strategy it could be venture capital, it could be infrastructure, real estate buyout, whatever it is. And uh, when you look at the pool of capital they're raising, there's either very limited number of assets that they've already purchased or none. A lot of the best primary investments with with, with managers that are really good. By the time you make a commitment, there's there's actually nothing in the fund. So so, so it's, a, it's a full blind pool is kind of the term we use uh, to articulate primaries. And, and, and you know the strategy the manager is going to go after with your money, but you don't know what assets they're going to buy. So primaries are, uh, are something where you're, you're kind of picking the manager versus picking the assets is the way I think about it. Secondaries 
are really just primaries that are four plus years into their life. So that same example we just gave you, if you fast forward four years, you made an investment, you're a limited partner in that fund, say the fund does buyout. Four years later, uh, they've invested 80% of your money. And for some reason, you need to sell. You need liquidity. And this could be a portfolio management decision. This could be a distressed situation. Uh, this could be because you just lost faith in the manager or their strategy. For whatever reason, you want to sell. Uh, there is a market, a secondary market, to trade that limited partner interest. So when you trade that interest from one person to another, they effectively step into your shoes and the manager is no, is no worse or better off. They just swap the name on the ledger and a new person now owns. So, so there's a whole market. It's about $110 billion annually, at least last year, of, of positions that trade on the secondary market. Co-investments, you know, following the same example, uh, somewhere along the line, this buyout fund that we've been talking about, uh, they might find an investment where they need $100 million to close it. But they can only put $75 million from their fund in responsibly. So they go out to their partners, LPs typically, and offer to co-invest $25 million of that particular deal. And so that co-investment is really you buying into one asset versus if you, if you invest in a primary fund, it's typically a diversified pool and a secondary is just a primary that happens later. So that's also a diversified pool, typically. Co-investment is, is typically one asset. Um, and in rare cases, it can be more, but, but that's not usually the situation. Okay. And, and we, if we're going to zoom in a little bit on secondaries, uh, the area that you focus on, um, assume that market has grown over time, right? It used to be smaller. It's getting bigger. Um, maybe just comment on why you think it's growing and then kind of where you see that trend uh, playing out. Yeah. This, <laughs> the secondary market, it's, uh, I, I kind of view it like, like what online dating was 15 years ago. It's, it's like people who met their spouses online, it, it, was, it was sometimes they were hesitant to tell you that. It, it, there's a little bit of a, um, you know, a stigma associated with it. And, and that's, how, that's how GPs were about their interest being sold on the secondary market 10 years ago. Uh, they, they kind of took it as a personal insult that one of their investors would, would sell out early and not stick, along, you know, stick with them for the full 10-year term. And, uh, and so the market was, was somewhat capped by the GPs not wanting the secondary market to grow. And, and you fast forward, you know, if you, if you, if you know anyone who have kids in their 20s you know, and, and they're single, they're, they're all online dating. There's no more stigma. It's just, it's just how it is. It's part of life. And, and the secondary market is the same. It's just how it is. It's used as a portfolio management tool today. Most general partners are, are fine with it as long as they can determine who the buyer is and, and assign off on them. So, you know, they, they aren't just going to let anyone buy into their fund, but they understand it's just part of the ecosystem. And so that's led to this, this kind of dynamic where it's being used for portfolio management in a very material way. When you look at the overall privates market, how much gets invested per year around the world, uh, you know, we think about that as kind of five to 6% of that over some period of time will get transacted and sold on the secondaries market. So as privates have grown, secondary market has grown, but at a faster rate because it's become more normalized and more acceptable by the GPs. Got it. Yeah. And it's kind of like, if you just think about a mutual fund, somebody buys that, they can sell it whenever they want. In this case, the, the market is expanding for people that are buying private interests that normally you can't sell. You're locked in. And, and obviously, there's often demand to sell. And when there's demand to sell and the entry point is attractive for the buyers, uh, you're going to build a market. And that's going to continually grow over time. Exactly. Yeah, exactly right. Okay. So so let's, uh, before we zoom in a little bit more, let's talk a little bit about why would somebody want to sell at a big discount? You know, if, if, if what I own is worth $100, why would I sell it for $80 or $70 or $60? What, what would motivate me to sell it at such a big discount? Yeah. I mean, there, there's, there's different reasons. Sometimes it's because you're selling a billion and a half dollars of assets and, uh, you know, all you care about is that the, the pool of assets you're selling gets you some price. Let's say that price is 95 cents in the dollar. Well, you're not 
going through every line item and trying to figure out, uh, is the venture fund that I'm selling getting me the same price as the buyout fund that I'm selling or, or, or the Sequoia venture fund. That's, that's, that's one of the hottest funds, you know, on the secondary market today. Um, if you will, I think you're just saying you either got 95 for the whole thing or you didn't. And so within that, there can be multiple buyers pulled together and, uh, almost certainly some of those buyers are buying for a massive discount to that 95 price. But the question is, are they really buying uh, real value for that discount? And we can talk about you know, discounts in general at some point, but basically, um, you, you know, buying at a discount in and of itself does not mean you're getting a good deal because there are lots of situations where GPs overmark their portfolios. So they're telling you it's worth a dollar, but if you went out and tried to sell that today, it might be worth 70 cents. And, and that's really on the secondary uh, you know, that's really the secondary buyer's job to determine what the real value is and then make sure they can buy it at a discount. Now, there are other reasons that people sell at, at bigger discounts. There, there's liquidity needs, which happen from time to time. There's a denominator effect issue, which has been plaguing U.S. public pensions for a while, where they're significantly ahead of their private allocation. They might have an allocation to privates of 20% for you know, all privates, buyout venture, infrastructure, everything. And they're at 35%. Well, that puts them in a position where they, over time, uh, you know, need to either sell or stop making new commitments or hope that the other 70% of their portfolio that's liquid rips higher and then, and then reduces the, the impact of the privates and moves it closer to 20% again. So in those situations, I wouldn't say they're forced sellers because they're really not, but they're motivated. And so as long as you can justify the price that you're buying as being in the, in the ballpark of fair, they'll take it. So there's a lot of reasons, but those are some of them. Okay. And so, so that, that was the seller side. So somebody owns a private interest in a fund and they're looking to sell. Now, would you uh, talk about uh, some of the inefficiencies you're finding you know, on the buyer side in terms of the people looking for these opportunities um, and maybe some areas where you're seeing inefficiencies where there's maybe more discount than uh, one might imagine. I think the best opportunities that, that I've seen, uh, you know, and I've taken advantage of my career were situations where my team and I had better information about the assets we were buying than the seller did. And this is a unique situation where there are a lot of investors and privates that are very unsophisticated. Because if you think about where so much of the institutional money is coming from, you know, these aren't typically the same types of investors that you would find at, at hedge funds or at direct private equity funds. So there's an information asymmetry which exists and, and creates opportunity. You know, the more skewed the information asymmetry, the better the deal on average. So you know, we at Banner Ridge cast a pretty wide net, you know, look at everything at a high level, and then try to determine where the information differential is, is the largest and really focus there. But I think a lot of people talk about four sellers and, um, you know, because it sounds sexy and it's, it's you know, it's, it's, it's exciting uh, is, is a story point. But in, you know, my career, I could probably count the number of, of, of four seller situations we've been a part of where we bought something on one hand. And, and actually only one of those deals would make it into the top 10 of the best deals that, uh, that I think we've done. So there are lots of exciting kind of inefficiencies that, that all boil down to the information asymmetry in, in private markets, specifically in secondaries. And we're trying to really take advantage of as many of those as we can uh, in, in each one of our funds. Yeah, there's something interesting that you said there, which is you oftentimes have an information advantage over the seller, uh, which sounds pretty counterintuitive. So I, if you think about it, yeah. if I own my house and I put it on the market to sell it, there's no way the buyer of that of that house is going to know more about my house than I do that I've lived there for ten years. Um, and you think about somebody who owns a fund and has been invested in it for three or four years and it sees all the reports and the the holdings and the buys and the sells, and you coming in are going to know more than they do, and you could price their investment better than they can. It sounds counterintuitive, um, which is I think really fascinating. Yeah, and I take your analogy and and it's, and it's changed it a little bit to, to to make it work for for what what I'm talking about on, on my side and what I'm seeing is that it'd be like you inherited ten thousand houses and you needed money 
And so, you know, a new, C- new CIO steps into a pension fund. Well, they just inherited all these houses. And they, they, they could, if they had enough resources and time, go through and really understand the nuances of each one. But they have a staff of three or four. And they realize that if they don't sell something, they won't have any money to deploy into their own ideas because this pension fund might be over allocated. Um, and so in reality, what they usually do is they just they take a simple approach of saying, okay, which managers haven't done well? Okay, well, if those managers haven't done well, let's sell them. But, but what a manager's done in the past isn't representative of what assets they own today necessarily. And that's where the, the information inefficiencies happen. One of you knows what the assets are and has priced them, and the other person is making a judgment based on the past, which is like driving in the rearview mirror. Right, and I guess the advantage of having the the information you know, knowledge uh, over the seller is the seller may be, think, may be thinking they're selling at a 10% discount, but in reality, it may be a 30% discount. Exactly, exactly right. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so when you think about uh, the relative uh, you know, risk reward of primary versus secondary markets, how do you think about it and how should investors think about that? Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great question. I, secondaries are more of an evergreen strategy because you can kind of pick your return just simply based on, on, on purchase price discount to, to NAV. You know, there are certainly times where there are more interested sellers at a price you want to buy than others. Uh, but part of the art in the secondary business is, is not only figuring out what price you want to pay, but, but how to get a willing seller to take that price. Primaries are very situation dependent. For Banner Ridge to make a primary investment, there has to be a clear opportunity that's, that's accessible today, like right now. Uh, you know, the bottom quartile of all these uh, you know, private benchmarking services are, are, are kind of littered with managers who told their investors there's this great opportunity right around the corner. Now, I, I can't tell you how many pitch books I've looked at where it's a distressed manager raising money in a non-distressed environment. And what they're telling you is every slide, every pitch book has the same slide. It's the maturity wall. There are huge amounts of maturities coming and the market's not going to be able to absorb them. And what's happened over the past 20 years is the market just pushed them out and absorbed them. Um, so, you know, when the opportunity doesn't materialize in, in one of these funds you commit to, the manager's not going to give you your money back. They're not going to say, oh, the opportunity went away. I'm really sorry. I'm going to let you out of your commitment. You, you're on the hook for that commitment at that point once you sign up. So you really want to make sure in a primary, the opportunity is, is right now. You know, these primary funds in a nutshell, they're, they're like the, the Hotel California. You, you get in and, and you can't leave. Uh, so you really want to make sure you're staying at, at, at the four seasons, whereas in secondaries, you have a price that corresponds to a return and you might not be able to get anyone to sell at that price but it's not like you're stuck in it because you aren't, you aren't getting the assets unless you get the price you want. So I kind of think that primaries are, 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 are a tool to access markets through the best managers at a point in time for most strategies that aren't evergreen. And then there are some strategies that just work in and out of markets uh, and cycles like secondaries, where um, you know, ac- accessing the best secondary groups really give you outsized performance you know, on in, in great years and in down years. Yeah, and sometimes even better in down years because there's more distress and, and you have LPs, limited partners that need to sell or GPs that need to sell stakes. And oftentimes there's a greater need for liquidity during difficult environments. And in that case, the discount uh, widens and there may be fewer buyers too. Yeah, yeah, all those are true. And, and raising money is harder in down down markets like it has been in 2022 and early 23. So there's just less funds that are raising capital to compete with you uh, if you're in more of a competitive part of the market. Yeah. And if you think about constructing a portfolio, um, you know, I, just in my experience, a lot of things go down at the same time during these very challenging environments that they're always a surprise. They kind of come out of the blue. Uh, and oftentimes they happen when people don't expect anything bad to happen, uh, as opposed to when people are anticipating <laughs> difficult times. Yeah. Um, and, and so in terms of constructing a portfolio, it's really helpful to have a return in there that it, one can, is resilient to those environments. And ideally, uh, if it can outperform in those environments because that discount gap widens. Yeah, I, I, I think the, um, 
so one thing in private investments in general is that, that, that managers only mark their, their books quarterly. So you as an investor, your most recent mark is at least three months old. And is it, it's at most six months old. So there's a large delay from when a market event occurs when there's a downturn and, and when most investors know what their assets are actually worth. So if you think about COVID, you know, that, that event, that market event happened in March of, of 2020. I mean, most investors in private funds, their most recent capital account statement, which is what tells them what their assets are worth from the GP's perspective, was 9-30-2019, which was almost six months prior. So what were those assets really worth? I mean, they definitely weren't worth what they were worth in 9-30-2019. Um, and I think hence the opportunity to have better information and make more informed decisions. Now, is the correlation between the public markets and the private markets tighter in reality versus what the managers are showing because of this, this muted effect of the structure of, of showing quarterly marks? Probably. I mean, there's probably more correlation there than, than the marks would imply. The other point I'd make is most private equity managers and direct managers, unless there's a QCIP or, the, or a public stock that they own for some reason, they tend to mark their private assets conservatively and therefore don't mark them down as much during, during times of volatility. So you could argue that, that they're really not always marked to market in the same way that you think about a public stock, but then that really dampens the volatility. So private markets, when you mix them with a public portfolio, there's no question that they dampen volatility and, and, if, and if the correlation, uh, because you can't calculate daily returns for these privates, is 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 a lot less um, than one, and and I think that is something that is really attractive to a lot of institutional investors. They view it as a um, is a diversifying asset class and something that they don't have to justify, uh, you know, to their board or their or their constituents at the very beginning of a downturn. And and so let's let's zoom in a little bit and talk about how you uh, can develop and maintain this you know edge this uh, information advantage. Um, obviously, competition grows over time. Um, so maybe talk through how you think about all that. Yeah, you know, developing an edge in, in, in the financial markets is it's very rarely the same type of edge you see in something like a Google, where you just got the best search engine in the world, and once you monopolize that, everyone goes to that search engine. Someone else could create a just as good a one, and and you're and they're still not going to beat you out because the switching component of that just doesn't make sense. In finance, it's, it's much more these accumulation of much smaller advantages that roll up to one moat that ends up being that ends up being pretty real if you've generated alpha for a period of time. But it, but it's not one big thing. So at Banner Ridge, you know, I'd kind of point out four that I think are really important, uh, you know, for for what we've created over the past fourteen years. And the first one is GPs that you're buying. You're buying a secondary interest in a GP, that GP ultimately has to sign off on that trade. So when you, when you transfer uh, that private equity interest from one investor to another, the GP has to ultimately sign documents saying, we're okay with Banner Ridge as a buyer. And it doesn't sound uh, that meaningful as a barrier to entry, but here's why it is. When you're a GP, there's certain things you care about a lot. And one of them is competitors. And you're not going to allow a competitor to own an interest in your fund. So that takes away a huge part of the sophisticated, knowledgeable universe in a secondary transaction. You know, an oak tree using uh, you know, Los Angeles um, GPs here in the analogy is not going to allow an Aries to buy one of their funds. So, so Banner Ridge is a neutral party because we're not competing with them. We don't have a direct business competing with any business that Oak Tree or Aries has. So effectively, you have to be a neutral party, and that knocks out all these potential competitors or really smart Wall Street people that could actually really disrupt this market. Then you set up your business intentionally that way. Yes, ab- absolutely. I mean, it's by design. And, and then you think about having primary money gives GPs a reason to be in, in front of you more frequently. It allows for more potential opportunities to do business, uh, which translates into better information flow. So, uh, you know, groups that don't have primary, 
primary business and aren't making primary commitments to the market that they buy secondaries in are at a significant disadvantage to groups that do. I mean, it just makes sense. If a GP sees you as a potential partner or you could actually support them in other businesses, they're going to treat you differently than if you're just buying and selling their funds because ultimately that doesn't help them in any way. It's just neutral to them. I think the other point that's differentiated is an edge. It's just is team. And it's really the backgrounds of your team. You know, having a team with direct investment experience is, is actually unique in the secondary and primary investment world. And I think it allows for, you know, the development of a of kind of more accurate assumptions, uh, you know, better underwriting capability. And I think it leads to more informed decisions. So you think about it, it's, it's having primary money. It's the nature of the structure where, you, where you're not competing with other smart people who work at direct firms. It's having the right team. And I think the last one uh, that, that, I, that I'd focus on is, is having software that organizes information in a smart way. Kind of giving your team the right information at the right time is incredibly differentiated in the secondary space and, and something that is truly underappreciated by many of the large players that built their businesses at a time when, when, when that maybe wasn't available or, or wasn't necessary. And a lot of the secondary firms today that, that, are, that are scaled uh, you know, have founders who are, who are in their 60s and 70s who, who did this business at a time where software maybe wasn't as, as important as it is today. And I think over time, that's going to really, it's going to be a spread in returns between the people that can utilize all the massive flow of information that comes through their firm to, to provide better pricing and those who can't. Yeah. I mean, the, the, one of the things that as an asset allocator is really attractive to me in, in that secondaries market is the return that you're earning, the investors are earning, isn't just how the assets perform. It's a, it's a combination of the underlying assets, you know, whether they do well or poorly, plus the closing of that discount. You know, if you buy something at a 20% discount to what it's actually worth today, assuming you do you know, good underwriting, you get, a, you get that 20% back. And that return isn't really dependent on how those underlying assets do. And you could think of it as like two return streams in one, um, and that can be very diversifying when you think about it from a portfolio construction standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about size. Obviously, the, the firm has grown. Uh, it's something that uh, investors are always thinking about. Um, and in some ways, there is some conflict because you know fees are paid on assets under management. If you're you know if you're too small, you're not really relevant. Um, if you're too big you're priced out of a lot of maybe really attractive opportunities because you can't, it won't move the needle. How do you think about size? I'll, I'll take it from the two, from two angles. You know, when we, all the fees and carry are priced into our deals. So the returns need to work net of those fees. So when we're a buyer in the secondary market, we're buying a fund. I don't really care if it's a big fund or a little fund because we're making sure that all the fees are, are priced in. Now there's other reasons you might care, but, but, but that one, is neutral and and to price that in, you're just you're just taking a bigger discount. So if I had no fees, let's say you could pay 80 cents, but it has fees, that means you got to pay 74 cents. Well, you priced in those fees into that transaction. So I think you know making sure you have the right alignment is a key part of any any investment, public private. You know, and at Banner Ridge, I think we're, we're on our side for our own funds, really careful about sizing, and really want to make sure. We're raising capital that's consistent with the current opportunity. Um, you know, we're huge investors in our own funds and, and, and believe in in eating your own cooking, and, and we want to see that from others as well. So, on the primary side, you know, when we're looking at new managers, uh, it's really important they can justify their fund size. And, and you see this all the time, where managers have a, have a great fund or two, and then they go from you know five hundred uh, you know million to three billion. And their team changes by, you know, 10%. And really, it's just all the same people with 10% more uh, trying to manage six times the capital. And, and they start competing in markets that they didn't expect would be more competitive. And they don't have the infrastructure in place. So you got to make sure that there's justification that passes, I think, passes the smell test um, on the primary side as it relates to, uh, to fund size. Yeah, so when you're looking at uh, you know, managers in private markets, you, you mentioned uh, one red flag is, is fund size. Are there other red flags that you think about? And on the other side, are there certain qualities that 
you emphasize as you're searching for the best managers? Yeah, I mean, fun size, fun size is definitely a, a, a red flag that you, once you see someone raising more money than they've deployed, you know, over, over the previous kind of four or five years, um, because then you're betting on the future. And kind of back to my point earlier on primaries, where you want the opportunity to exist today, you really need to, again, just make sure that the fund size is rational. So that's one. Alignment is, is really essential. You know, so many GPs try to commit the absolute least amount of money they can to their own funds, um, which, which gives them a free option with investors' money, you know, because they have a carry, they, they share in the performance. You know, at great firms, everyone on the team is, is trying to figure out, you know, the maximum they can, they can invest because they view the opportunity as, as the best option to create wealth. And so I think focusing on alignment is really important. When you see alignment off, that's a big deal. Again, back to my point on, on making sure there's an opportunity to today. I, I just can't emphasize that enough that a lot of primaries I've seen where people end up with very poor performance, oftentimes it's because the opportunity didn't materialize. It, it just, it, it, it all made sense as a story, but then it just didn't happen. It's kind of like the, you know, the recession of 2023. 20, you know, it sounded great and, and, and it just didn't happen. Could it happen in the future? Yeah, but it didn't then. Um, I think leadership is really important and, 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 you know, having strong leadership where the stars say, you know, stay at the firm long-term, the B and C players are, are kind of managed out. You don't want to see significant turnover because of economics, you know, economics are something where you've got to make sure the team is, is aligned with the firm. And that takes a bit more effort. And a lot of times GPs tend to be uh, a bit reluctant to share that, but, but that's an important point. Um, I think it's also really important to meet the significant owners of a firm that you're going to invest with. You know, your gut feel um, when you're with them goes a really long way at sniffing out issues. I can tell you my career, I've avoided some, some pretty tough situations when a lot of the stars aligned and, I, and the last check was to meet the owners and spend time with them. And, and, I, and I always make sure that I do that personally. And, uh, and I pulled the plug on countless investments over that meeting. Um, so I think that's, you know, that's really important. And I guess the last one is just a consistent history of, of, of winning is people, you know, great track record, but generally just, just putting a plus effort into things and the senior people being very involved in avoiding distractions. Oftentimes you can pull up the press and you Google the heads of firms and it shows up that they own, you know, a huge real estate portfolio and they own not just one house, but, but they own, you know, 40 houses all over the country. There's just so many things you can do with money to distract yourself. Uh, and I'm not going to pick on anyone for any specific uh, example outside of that, but, the, but there are a lot. And so we're looking for, for, for GPs where the senior people are still involved. They're in the trenches and, and, they're, and they're laser focused on building an incredible business. Yeah. I mean, we're talking about money. You need to trust the people that you're partnering with. That's, uh, you know, I think one of the, always the highest priorities. Uh, the other thing that I've learned in like, talking to managers and investors over the last couple of decades is I feel like investors and managers fall into one of two camps. And obviously there's a spectrum there. One is they're in the business of generating returns. That's their primary objective. And then those are in the business of gathering assets. And obviously you're paid on the assets that you manage. Um, and so there's a there's kind of an incentive to grow your assets. And, and everybody will tell you they're in the business of generating returns. But their track record may suggest the other uh, extreme. And, and so I'm always trying to, when I'm sitting down with somebody, I'm trying to answer this very simple question of what business are you in? Are you in the business of doing the best for your investors or are you in the business of doing the best for yourselves? And obviously there's a spectrum there, but, but uh, you listen to what they say, but that's taken with a grain of salt. You got to look at their actions. It's, yeah, it's such a key insight. And um and there's lots of evidence that can go in. Look, it's, there's so many factors that go into determining that, where, where you shake out on that question. But when you're, when you're investing with firms that are public and you know the public markets value fees at a massive multiple relative to carry, it's, it's really tough to work at a company that's public and, and be only focused on performance. So I think that's like the, the first filter for us is who owns this firm and then it goes, it gets harder and harder to sort through from there. But if it's public, that's one that we've always struggled with. Yeah. And there's always obviously exceptions, but yeah, uh, that's just another, yeah, it's just evidence. So I hope you're 
you know, your objectives. Yeah, exactly. Let's let's discuss the market environment for a second. Uh, there's been a massive shift the last couple of years, and right? you went from zero interest rates for lots to all of a sudden the fastest rate increases in 40 years, and you know potentially higher for longer rates. Um, so there's been a kind of a shock to the system and, and shock waves kind of playing out. Um, what's your perspective of the environment and where it's headed, and then more specifically how secondaries plays into that? So you know, zero interest rates going away was a massive shift for everyone. That single change is leading to a lot of tough questions being asked at investment firms, but but also by investors. And you know, you know, does the company does a company work with current rates? You know, how long can a company survive without rates coming down? How much risk should an individual investor take while he can get five percent risk free, and so on and so forth? You know, I was on a panel recently where um, there was an insurance. Uh, individual from his insurance company on the panel with me, and he made a point where he said, when rates were at zero, we we really backed up the truck into privates because we needed to get the additional uh, return from privates to meet our overall hurdle for our, our plan. And now with, with, int- with risk-free rates at 5%, I, uh, I just don't need to do that. And so their, his perspective was that they were going to pull back on the percentages they were allocating to, to, to risk assets in the private markets because they just didn't need to take that much risk to, to meet their goals. And I think that's going to be an interesting paradigm shift if rates stay where they are or maybe slightly lower, but for longer. It's just how does it, how does it roll through the markets as people make different decisions in their portfolios? So that'll be interesting to watch. You know, on the secondary market, is it continues to mature and becomes more of a portfolio management tool I think the volume is just going to continue to, to increase at very significant rates. I mean, it's just, you still feel like you're in the early days with, with secondaries because you're such a small percentage of the total amount of money that's invested in, uh, in privates today. You know, as a percentage of the total amount, secondaries is tiny that trades in the market and changes hands. And I think it's over time, it's going to become more and more. And I also believe that the buyout part of the secondaries market has been the first part of the market to become more commoditized. Um, and I would expect lower returns in that space in the future relative to the last 10 to 20 years where the beta in that market has been pretty exceptional. And this is the, the large secondary groups that are buying uh, buyout funds. That's what I'm kind of referring to specifically. You know, the concept of a mega secondary fund is back with several funds raising 20 plus billion. And these funds control a lot of the dry powder in the space. So, you know, there's also some niche secondary strategies that I, that I would kind of view as the field of dreams today. Um, direct lending is one of those. You know, direct lending on the primary side of the market has grown exponentially post-global financial crisis. It's people needed to kind of stretch for yield. And you've seen lots of groups come out in the last two years saying, I'm going to do a secondary fund to focus on buying direct lending uh, you know, funds. But the issue is that there just isn't enough sellers. Because if you're looking to rebalance your portfolio and you have a direct lending fund with a low duration, it pays a cash coupon and it's performing, it's probably not the first thing you're going to sell. Uh, it's, that's probably going to be close to the end of the list. And so you've seen lots of money coming into the market to chase those opportunities but they don't, it hasn't really materialized. And, and even worse than that, I think you, you have a better opportunity to uh, invest in direct lending in a primary fund than you do on the secondary market, which is pretty unique. It's usually the reverse. And then I guess my last point here is just that I think the, the strategies and secondaries that have um, you know, clear barriers to entry where information is hard to get, you know, venture, distress, special situations and credit, I think they're just going to sustain their edge much longer. You know, as these markets become more efficient, as secondaries continue to proliferate, I think you're going to see the, the, the first part of the curve, which is already happening on buyout, and then it's going to continue to get more efficient. Uh, but I think the end of that efficiency, which is pretty far off today in my view, is, is going to be these strategies where information is extremely hard um, and there's just clear barriers to entry. Right. And then obviously we haven't had major distress for, for some time. So in terms of the growth and opportunity set for secondaries, 
I would anticipate that that would improve if you do get a you know a bad stretch. Yeah, I, I think that's uh, I think that's fair to say, and I think you know within one of the things that we think about a lot is where is the new volume of the of, of secondaries in distress going to come from? And really, all you need is is a good story every few years where where a bunch of investors invest in primary funds uh, to capture distress. That's that's again, it's not now, but it's coming soon. And uh, and COVID is such a great example because you know, there were thirty nine different dislocation funds that were being raised over the summer of 2020. But by and large, the dislocation was gone by the summer of 2020. And most of these funds raised uh, capital. And some of them raised 15 billion plus. Huge opportunities for us, you know, starting really this year, the end of this year and then and going forward for the next five or six years. That's uh, really fascinating. Um, why don't we, why don't we uh, close on uh, your you know, what you feel is one insight that you've learned in, in, throughout your career that uh, an investment insight that you think most investors may not think about. It's hard to come up with an insight where the most investors haven't thought about, it, but maybe maybe giving perspective on an insight that you maybe have thought about, but from a GP's perspective, because one of the things that's really great about Banner Ridge is we get to sit on both sides of the fence. We're an LP in some in, in, in portfolios, but we're also a GP. And, you know, so I think we you know, look for managers that have overwhelming majority of their net worth tied up in their business. You know, there's lots of managers that make excuses and get cagey when the topic of, you know, comes up of how much they've invested. You know, the right managers are, are proud to talk about how much money of, of their own capital is at risk alongside yours. And you know, if you think about, uh, if you really have something special with real alpha, which is rare, it's incredibly rare. Um, it's not hard to put a whole bunch of your money into that. And, and believe me, when, when things get hard, you want to know that the managers um, that you're invested with are hurting as much, if not more, than you, and they're willing to do whatever it takes to work things out. Yeah, I've avoided a lot of really tough situations uh, by being laser-focused on this point. And I'll just give you two quick anecdotes. You know, One of my clients owns a massive hedge fund. He's been wildly successful for, for a very long time. And when you, when you very rarely does interviews, but, but the two interviews that he's done in both interviews, it's an important, and this is an important component for him personally, when you meet him, he, he talks about how the employees of his firm are the biggest investor by far in, in his funds. And, you know, they eat their own cooking, but, but the proof is in the pudding and this alignment point that I'm, that I'm making I'll give you an example from, from the end of last week where we ended up passing on a deal we spent a significant amount of time on. Th- this situation, we loved the company. It checked a bunch of boxes. It was a co-investment deal. We were at the 95-yard line. And, and, and something that was holding us up was that the, the sponsor here, the GP, was they were rolling a transaction fee into the deal as their GP commit. So it wasn't coming out of their bank account. It was just being... Basically, it was a deal fee that they were just rolling into the transaction and risking. But they were making more in annual monitoring fees than that deal fee just 12 months later. So they were essentially putting no money in. They were getting a fee stream no matter what happened when this deal closed. And the owner of the firm, which is a family-owned business, he'd owned this business for 13 years. He uh, was selling two-thirds of his interest for a life-changing amount of money. And, you know, he chose that much. He had the option to keep more in, but he chose to sell. And, and you just looked at the alignment and said, there's too many ways where both of these people end up totally happy and we lose. And so we passed on that deal. We'll see where it shakes out. But I don't feel confident that if that company didn't you know, hit a hard time, that they would do whatever it took. I think they would be, uh, you know, completely okay um, you know, walking away if things got really tough and they'd both be incredibly rich from it. Yeah, I guess it goes back to just follow the money, right? Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Tony, this was great. Uh, I appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I think it's a market segment that uh, a lot of investors may not be familiar with. You know, it's kind of a corner where there's seems like just really interesting opportunities. So I, I appreciate you walking us through that and, and sharing your insights and your experience. Thank you. Of course. Uh, it was my pleasure. And this is really fun. So thanks for, thanks for inviting me on. Thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. 
please visit our website at insightfulinvestor.org to access past shows and learn more about our podcast. If you have questions, feel free to email us at info at insightfulinvestor.org. And if you enjoyed the discussion, please subscribe to this podcast to ensure you don't miss future episodes. And don't forget to forward today's conversation to others you think would enjoy listening. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Evoke Advisors, their affiliates, or companies featured. Due to industry regulations, participants on this podcast are instructed not to make specific trade recommendations, nor reference past or potential profits. And listeners are reminded that securities trading, commodity trading, and alternative investments are complex and carry a risk of substantial losses. As such, they are not suitable for all investors.